I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. Uh, what got you there? What got you, got you? Gary Klein is a research psychologist famous for pioneering in the field of naturalistic decision-making. Klein developed a recognition-primed decision, RPD, model to describe how people actually make decisions in natural settings. The RPD model has been incorporated into Army Doctrine for Command and Control. He also developed methods of cognitive task analysis for uncovering the tacit knowledge that goes into decision-making. More recently, he has been investigating sense-making, replanning, and anticipatory thinking. Klein has developed a pre-mortem technique for helping organizations with risk management. This conversation explores how experts make informed decisions in the real world and ways we can all become better decision-makers. For the high performers looking to improve their leadership abilities, listen up and get ready to discover the path to becoming a better version of yourself. Let's face it, the best leaders, they're always on the hunt for insights, wisdom, looking for ways to get better, ways to make other people better. They see the gap between who they are and who they could be. For three decades, thousands of the world's most elite leaders have turned to admired leadership for insights, for the behaviors and routines of true leadership excellence, how to make decisions, build relationships, how to motivate and inspire. Now, for the first time, these rare insights are available online. Admired Leadership has this incredible video platform that focuses on 10 areas that are critical for all leaders. In each video module, you'll learn the 10 specific behaviors of the very best leaders. I've had the pleasure of taking this course, and it is hands down the best course I've ever taken on leadership. If you're looking to better yourself or raise up the team or company you're working with, then you have to check out Admired Leadership. I'm also excited about the new Admired Leadership Field Notes email. This is a daily email from the front lines of leadership. It's free and even better when you sign up, you'll get a special 16-page guide to motivation and inspiration that will change the way you lead. So you need to ask yourself the question, are you ready to become an even better leader? If so, find out more at admiredleadership.com. This podcast is all about uncovering the lessons and wisdom high performers are using to better their life. And one of the most important elements of high performance is your sleep. That's why I'm thrilled to tell you about 8Sleep. 8Sleep is revolutionizing what a great night of sleep means. The Pod Pro by 8Sleep is the most advanced solution on the market. And what it does is the Pod Pro has dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking so you know the exact amount and quality of the sleep you're getting. It comes in the form of both a mattress or a cover you can put on your existing mattress. Get the pod and start sleeping as cool as 55 degrees for those people who like a nice chilly room or mattress and as hot as 110 degrees. I'm one of the fans of the cooler mattress, so this is perfect for me. The temperature of the Pod Pro will adjust each side of the bed based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment for you. So what's the result of all this? Eight sleep users fall asleep 32% faster, reduce sleep interruptions by 40%, and get an overall more restful night of sleep. The Pod Pro by Eight Sleep is so popular as garnered the attention from CEOs, pro athletes, and overall high performers like yourself. Go to eightsleep.com 
forward slash Sean to check out the Pod Pro and save $150 at checkoff. That's eightsleep.com forward slash Sean. Gary, welcome to what got you there. How are you doing today? Doing very well, thank you. Thanks for inviting me onto this podcast. No, and anytime I get to talk with an expert and, and one of the leaders in their field, especially around things I'm really intrigued about, which is decision-making, I, I get really excited. But I would love to know, I mean, you've uncovered so much and have learned so much, but is there a mindset of yours that if you could give to anyone starting out in their career today, you think would extremely be beneficial for them starting out? Oh my gosh, <laughs> that, that's a tough one. What's the mindset? Um, I, uh, the only thing, what, what, I'll tell you what comes to mind. Um, what comes to mind is, is to be curious and it's trivial to say, and it's banal to say, just be curious. However, uh, I think coming out of graduate school, a lot of that curiosity is uh, dampened because we're supposed to be careful. We're supposed to be rigorous. We're supposed to collect data in a careful way, in a controlled way, so that um, th there's no mistaking anything. And if the data aren't coming out the way we expect, it's very, very frustrating. But it also is an opportunity to, to wonder what's really going on here and to be curious and to try to dig deeper into the data, into the phenomenon, because you can only collect data carefully about things you already understand very well. But when things aren't going well, when the data are showing some anomalies, that's an opportunity. It's not a pleasant opportunity. I tell you, as, a, as, as someone who's collected more than my share of data that, that didn't turn out the way I expected, it's always very frustrating. Okay, now the, the study didn't work and I'll stew for a couple of days. Then I'll look at the data and I'll say, of course, it could never have turned out that way. How could I have been so simple-minded? So it's, it's uh, being open to the data and open to the observations rather than locking in to, uh, to the methodology and the rigor. Was there an experience or maybe even a mentor that helped just cultivate the, this curiosity inside of you? Because I, I have to imagine when you were coming out, I mean, it was the same thing, extremely hard to uh, adapt that mindset. I can't, I, I, I didn't have that kind of a mentor uh, because I came out of, uh, of a, a tradition that, that was very focused on careful collection of data and specifying uh, the methods and being, uh, you know, very rigorous in, in, in the analysis. And where did it come out? You know where it came out? It came out accidentally. It was the first study we did with firefighters. And we had a hypothesis about how, how they wouldn't, they didn't have the time to, to compare all kinds of options. So they must just be comparing a few options and we we had this hypothesis and we had funding from from the the, the u.s army and then the, they kept telling us no we don't compare any options we, we just look at a situation and you know what to do and we heard it again and again and we we, we kept beating against it we were sure they had to be comparing options and they weren't and it was sort of a 
a moment of desperation to say, forget about our hypotheses. Let's just look at it from their perspective. How could they be doing it? What could be going on? And that changed the whole perspective we had instead of trying to force them into the hypotheses we started with was phenomenologically to try to get inside their head and see how this could be happening. To me, that was a fundamental mindset shift or phenomenological shift that really changed the way the rest of my career went. Were you aware of the impact that had at that time for you? Could, could you zoom out and understand, you know what, this, this is like fundamentally shifted how I approach things? No, I wasn't aware at all. <laughs> I was doing a six-month project, and we had to get the data analyzed, and the data weren't cooperating, and the firefighters hadn't been cooperating. They hadn't been telling us what we wanted, and it was like month five, and I'm going over the, the protocols, and, and I said, you know, here's what I think's going on, and I told my, my coworkers about it, Roberta Calderwood and Ann Clinton Sirocco, and uh, and they said, yeah, that, that, that looks like what, what's happening. So the, the, it was a, an immense feeling of relief that we would be able to write a final report. That's how narrow my perspective was. <laughs> I want to get this final report out so that we can finish the project. I had no idea what impact it was going to have. Well, we're going to dive a lot into, into your specific work. I know you mentioned the, the firefighter, um, that instance, there's going to be a lot to uncover, but I want to get inside your head just a little bit more. And th- there must be things that you do pretty consistently or have done consistently throughout your career. We can just call these habits, routines. Are there anything like that, that, that you've stuck with for a really long period of time that you think have helped accelerate your career path? Um, you make it sound much more, much more deliberate, and you know, much better thought out than it ever was. Because in fact, there was no career path. I came out of graduate school, not even thinking that I was going to be a researcher. I hadn't published a single uh, article when I when I got my PhD, and 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 I was in a a, a research uh, you know program. And I worked with two different advisors, and um, I just I hadn't published anything, so I didn't think of myself as a researcher. And so I, I, I didn't say, "Here's what I want to achieve. Here's what my career path is." None of that. And then, um, and then I took my dissertation, and I was teaching at uh, St. Lawrence University in upstate New York. And I had some time there and I said, well, let me just write up my dissertation. It was on short-term memory. Um, and let me, and, and, and I was the only one in the, in, in the department doing that kind of cognitive research because don't forget this was 1969 before cognitive psychology had really uh, entered into, you know, into the mainstream of, 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 of uh, university research. So uh, my advisor was kind enough, Jim Voss was kind enough to, to agree to, to be my advisor, but that wasn't his area. It was no one's area. So I did this study. I had the data. I had, the results came out well. And I said, I'll write it up and maybe I'll get a publication. And then I can just go on with my career of being a, 
a college professor and, and, and hope that that works. And so I wrote it up and I said, where am I going to send it? And I thought, why don't I just send it off to the, one of the best journals in the field? They'll reject it, but they'll probably have good criticisms and I can work my way down until I find the right level. So I sent it off to the Journal of Experimental Psychology and I waited for the rejection and I knew it was going to hurt, but I was, you know, I, I was, I was preparing myself and to my astonishment, they accepted it with hardly any revisions. And, and I thought, well, maybe, maybe I can be a researcher. And so that was a, a, a formative moment for me in, in changing my, my, my professional identity that possibly I could be a researcher. Now, I think it's a mistake to, uh, and looking back on it to say, I want to be a researcher. I don't like that as an identity because it's, it's, it focuses on what kind of person do I want to be? I think it's much more productive to just be curious about things and say, why is that happening? And so you do the research because you, you want to know rather than because that's what your role demands and you're always looking for what's the next piece of research I need to do in order to be a researcher. Gary, I think the, the beauty in your answer there is that exploratory type nature open for some serendipity as opposed to having that that, that staunch career path. Um, so I actually, I actually love that. I, I wish more people had that approach, ex- exploring their curiosities and letting things unfold as they will. G- Gary, so you mean to tell me we can't take a handful of college students, just just put them in, in the laboratory and, and get real world results there? Um, yeah, I get a lot of arguments from laboratory researchers when, when I say that. And they say the laboratory is the real world too. And it, and it is, but it's it's a very small part of the real world because you wouldn't have those college students, you wouldn't let them um, examine you and take care of you if you went into a dentist's office, would you? Absolutely not, no. If your home was on fire, you wouldn't want one of those college students to be in charge of the crew that, that shows up to put out the fire. And you wouldn't want to give them anything important. And in fact... One of the constraints of the laboratory paradigm is that in order to get significant, statistically significant results, you want to have a big difference between the experimental group and the control group, but you also want to have reduced variability so that the statistics will come out uh, 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 to show what what you, what you found. So you want to reduce variability. And one way to reduce variability is to make sure that everybody has the same amount of experience on the task. And how do you control that? And there's one easy and powerful way to make sure everyone has exactly the same experience in performing the task. And that is to give them all a task they've never seen before. So they all start out from zero. So essentially, you're studying novices, and you're doing it deliberately. And because of that, you miss the impact of expertise. And that was what the the laboratory researchers were missing, that the, uh, the, the people that the naturalistic decision makers were studying 
had lots of experience and could use that experience. And, it, and that was a, a, a critical factor that, that, wasn't, that wasn't being captured in the laboratory. Yeah, that, that's one of my big holdups. I look a lot into behavioral economics and these experiments, they're always saying how irrational we are, how, how poor we are decision-making. And, and then you think about it, like th there's a clear difference between uh, a college student who you've given 10, 10 hours of training opposed to someone who's been doing this for 25 years. I mean, they've got this fingertip feel that it's, it's hard to calculate. Um, and, and so I appreciate your work, bring, bring some of this light. I, I would love to know through, through your lens, the difference between a novice and an expert though. Right. Um, you think that I would have a good answer for that, but I don't. <laughs> um, because it's, there's no gold standard for who is an expert. I mean, but we, we, there, there's been a number of pieces published on and the nature of expertise and what experts can do, what they can see that's different from a novice. So, um, you know, experts notice things that novices don't notice. Experts can anticipate what's likely to happen next and, and novices can't. Experts, you know, rapidly uh, size up what's going on in a situation so they know what to do in that situation. They know uh, if, if, if their expectancy is violated, they can quickly see that, that this isn't happening the way it's supposed to. Something must be wrong. And maybe I, maybe I have the wrong interpretation. So there's a variety of ways that experts differ from novices. What's hard is to know who is an expert. Hmm. And... There's, you know, I've I last I, I looked, I identified 10, 10 different criteria. None were foolproof. One way to identify an expert is someone who's had lots of years of experience. There, there are too many people who have lots of experience who never really develop expertise because they're not they're not reflecting on their experience or learning from their failures or getting better. So years of experience doesn't do it. It could be that someone is an expert because they have a track record of success. Um, but it may be that they were lucky. So just because someone has had success in the past, maybe they were just fortunate and, and maybe it was different circumstances than the one you have now. It could be that it's someone who carries themselves with, with confidence and inspires confidence. Too many people who have learned to inspire confidence who really don't have expertise. So together, these kinds of criteria make sense, but each one of them has its own limitations. Yeah, I think that's so important, uh, understanding the varying degrees of all of these things. One of the things you mentioned around expertise is just really analyzing their own knowledge as they progress. So you have a 30-year career, and it's not just one year repeated again and again. You're advancing during those careers. What did you actually do to, let's just call it like distill down some of the lessons you were learning so that you were advancing on a steep trajectory? Right, I didn't do anything. So the experts in the study, they have an area that they want to get better at. If I'm a firefighter, I want to become a better firefighter. And I may, uh, and, and, and one of the criteria I use for, for who's an expert is I'll ask them, tell me about the last mistake you made. Hmm. 
And if somebody says, I can't think of any mistakes, right away I downgrade them because experts readily think of their last mistakes because their mistakes haunt them. Their mistakes eat at them and they're they're trying to figure out what should I have done because they know there's a skill they want to get better at. The reason I'm disqualifying myself is there wasn't any skill I wanted to get better at. I, I wanted to study experts and I guess Maybe that's the skill of trying to, okay, so maybe that's it. I wanted to get better at understanding experts. And when I would do interviews with experts after the interview, I would think I should have asked that question or I'll go over the transcript and I'll say, I can't believe that I didn't put these pieces together and and follow up in that way. So, or um, what would have happened if I had tried this method instead of that method. So I guess, I guess maybe, maybe that's the way that I, that I'm trying to get better. And I still try to get better is to improve, uh, improve my skills at capturing expertise. There's one incident I, I had, it still bothers me. It was really a stupid incident. Um, we, we, we had a sponsor who, who made soup. Um, and they wanted us to study their consumers to understand their consumer decision-making. And so we had a few of us show up at a a, a test lab, and there were people who were recruited, you know, standard recruitment, and they came in, and there were a bunch of cans of soup, and we said, pick one of these cans, you're going to have lunch here, pick one of these uh, for, for your lunch. And they would say, that's the one I like. So we would oh, oh, take that can off. We would make soup for them. And uh, and they would eat the soup and we would interview them as they were eating the soup. This is really very, very trivial. And, um, and I remember this one woman was, you know, it was her favorite soup and, 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 and she she really was relishing it. And, and I said, how could the manufacturer, how could it get better? What could make it any better? And she said, I can't think of any way. It's perfect the way it is. And, and I said, it's, it's always perfect. She said, every spoonful is perfect. And she and, and the interview finished. I didn't get any suggestions from her. But as, we, as I was driving back with the others, I realized that's what she said. But as I watched her, she would take a spoonful of soup. She'd look at what was in the spoon and then sometimes she would shake it out or take a, a, another spoonful. And I should have said, why did you uh, shake out the last spoonful? What was missing? That was the wedge. I was right in front of my eyes, but I never, you know, I was so focused on ans- asking my question that I wasn't watching what she was doing. It still bothers me that I missed that. And it's just a lousy bowl of soup that she was, she was eating. Any idea why that still bothers you? And what? Any idea why that still bothers you? It it bothers me because I should have been better. Hmm. I should have been watching. And, And it's, you know, it's a constant reminder not to be so locked into my interview guide that I'm not watching and listening to the person that I'm studying. 
Gary, I, I know you're you're just filled with stories like this. I, I'm wondering for you, do you have any great stories around someone you would deem as an, an exquisite decision maker and, and how they actually executed great decision making in the real world? A great decision maker. Um, well, w- one of the people that, that just awes me is a guy named Robert Schmidl. And he's a former Marine. He retired as a three-star Marine. And uh, he was a pilot. And he had reddish hair that kind of stood up. So pilots have to have call signs. So his call sign was Rooster. So that's how everybody knew him, Rooster Schmidl. And I met him when he was uh, a lieutenant colonel. And... uh, there was a, a, a Marine program in California and they were standing, they, they were trying out some new equipment, uh, new electronic equipment that was going to allow a different organizational structure. And this was a, a, a program and it had, there was a big test coming up in about two or three months. I got called in to be part of that test. And frankly, the preparation wasn't going well. And the person in charge of making it happen just it wasn't was wasn't uh, wasn't succeeding, and that person had to be removed and you know sent to another assignment. And Schmidl gets brought in, and now you have this malfunctioning group of people. It was a, a large cast of characters. I would say thirty or forty people in a in a command post, a futuristic command post with technology nobody understood that was going to have implications nobody could anticipate. And there was going to be lots of data collected and lots of visibility. And Schmidl is in charge of making it happen. And I watched what he did. And he came in and he didn't give any speeches. And he didn't um, talk about game plans or any kinds of plans. He just wanted to understand how this how this command post was working. So he said, do your job. You know, there were, there were some test problems they were working on. And he went over to one person and he said, okay, so you they were all had a computer screen in front of them. And he said, so tell me what your job is. And the person said, here's what I'm doing. Here's what I'm supposed to achieve. Schmidl said, okay, who, who do you get information from? And the guy said, I don't know, somebody back there. And Schmidl said, and you, 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 you know, get the information and you do something with it, you analyze it, and you send it off. And the guy said, right, who do you send it to? And the guy said, I don't know, I just press, you know, send, and, 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 and that's, that's the end of it. And Schmidl said, okay, I'd like you to get out of your chair and... Let's go around and find out who is sending you information. And let's understand who they are, what they're doing, why they think you need it. And let, let's go around and see who's, who are the people who are sending you information. And so we made our rounds to try to find out who is sending this guy information. Everybody's watching us and, and listening to what's happening. And then we had that sorted out. Schmidl said, now you send the information. 
who do you send it to? And the guy said, you know, I've got some names on our roster. Let's talk to those people. Let's find out who they are and why they need it and how they're using it. And so we started and we did that for a couple of days. And in a few days, everybody understood how that unit was supposed to work. And that's different from saying, here's a wiring diagram or here's a mission statement or here's a flow chart. It was personalizing it so people could could really get a sense of how they were how this whole unit was supposed to make decisions together. And Schmittel didn't know the answer. He wasn't, you know, trying to lead anybody. He was trying to discover it with them and put them into a curious mindset. So that was one of the most dramatic things that that, that I can remember seeing. Gary, I, I love that story. I'm wondering for people like Schmidl, uh, before you were talking, just being able to analyze your own decision-making so you can advance, how have you uncovered that the best decision-makers take this knowledge, distill it down, and are able to pass it down to those earlier in their organizations, their teams, just so those people can learn that type of knowledge earlier in their career? Right. How do you disseminate it? How do you um, how do you package it? Uh, I don't think they, they have developed a blueprint because I think blueprints are for things that are literally to be nailed down. Yeah. And that's the opposite of these voyages of discovery. So I think what's going on here is you have people who are in encouraging and engaging in the discovery process for the people they're helping and for themselves so that others can uh, learn what they need to learn. And so you can, you can look at them and see, are they understanding? Are they, are they uh, comprehending what's happening or are they confused? Because there's a way that people just signal us with their expression that you know, they'll just have a quizzical look that says, I don't quite get it. So you, you need to be sensitive to, to people's reaction to know, do I have to change my instruction? Do I need to add more information? I don't want to over-explain, but I don't want to under-explain. So it's really forming those kinds of relationships that allow you to enter into a, into a real dialogue with people. And then, and then you tailor what, 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 what you tell them or what you let them ask. Or you say, you're not, there's something's bothering you. What's bothering you? And you give them an opportunity to ask you what's bothering you, them. These last two stories, it sounds like relationships pl play an important role in, in this development. Uh, am I correct in, in, in assessing that? Right. And the ability to take other people's perspectives. You mean we've got to listen to other people now, Gary? We've got to listen to people. I just, um, I'm doing a project now about making diagnoses in emergency departments. This is a project funded by, uh, that, that's being led by Johns Hopkins University. Aisha Gersis at Johns Hopkins is the leader of this effort. And, and there's, this, there's this one incident where somebody comes into an emergency department and um, she doesn't know why she's there. 
and she doesn't think she needs to be there. But her family said, you know, mom, you need to go to an emergency department. What was, what was happening was she was, uh, she was having strokes, but she didn't know it. And so she didn't want to be in the emergency department. And she said, I'm perfectly fine. And, and she denied an, 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 any kind of uh, disability. And the physician who was examining her glanced over to the two family members and they rolled their eyes. <laughs> and he knew that regardless of what she was saying, there was a real problem there. And so he said, okay, thank you, ma'am. Just wait a second. And he took the family members out into the hall where he could talk to them because they didn't want to contradict her while she was present because it was making her very agitated and very angry. So they weren't going to contradict her in front of her. And this physician picked up that something was happening just because he saw them roll their eyes. But how many times have you gone into, you know, to be examined and the physician or the physician's assistant is just staring at a computer screen yeah. and isn't looking at you at all and isn't picking up those kinds of nonverbal cues to be followed up on. Yeah, it's it's so true. I feel like anytime, and I, I try I try to avoid doctors at all costs. But um, anytime I've gotten great feedback, it's like they're they're truly there in, in the moment. They're attuned to what I'm saying. They're understanding the patterns of my voice to uncover the, those little things. And and this just makes me think about one of the things you brought to light, and, and that's around the, the premortem. I, I know a lot of people have heard of the postmortem, where you analyze things after the fact. But you, but you were talking about um, talking with the family member. And they were afraid to bring things up in front of them. And it makes me think of the pre-mortem where, where you're doing some of these things prior. I, I would love for you just to dive into the pre-mortem because this is something I, I've implemented that's been incredibly helpful for me. Right. Pre-mortem is, is a source of surprise and confusion for me because it's, it's got legs. It, you know, people like you have heard of it and, and, and are using it. And people in all, all over are using the premortem, and most of the time they don't even tell me, and usually they don't tell me, and it's just sort of taken off. And it was never, I never expected any of that. The premortem, it's a simple exercise. Um, people know what a postmortem is. If, if a patient dies, you do an autopsy to find out why the patient died. And usually you can discover the cause of death or do a reasonably good job of it. And so the, the medical staff gets smarter because they get feedback about what, what went wrong with this patient. And it's, and it's also useful for the family because the family finally learns what it was that, that led to the death of their, of their loved one. And, and if it's something interesting and unusual, you can write, they could write it up as a note and it could be published for the community. Everybody benefits from a postmortem, everybody except the patient, because the patient is dead, so it doesn't help the patient. And I applied that that to to research projects we would do. And if the project went poorly, we would gather together in, in a conference room to say what went wrong, and and you know, maybe what could we have done to have prevented it. And maybe we learned something, but it was too late for that project. That project had already failed. So I said, why don't we 
why don't we do that session at the beginning rather than the end? And when we have the kickoff meeting for a new project, we say, here's the project, we're all excited. Now let's take 20 minutes and imagine that the project has failed. Not just imagine that it's failed. I have a crystal ball and uh, actually I do have a crystal ball someplace, just not with me. And imagine that I'm looking into a crystal ball and it's now six months from now or a year from now. And the image in the crystal ball is clear as you want. And it shows this project that we're so excited about. This project has failed. There's no doubt the project has failed. And the people on the project are frustrated and angry and embarrassed and irritated with each other, but there's no going back. The project has failed. We know that. Everybody in this room getting ready to start, this project has failed. That's what the crystal ball is showing. Now, everybody take two minutes and write down all the reasons why the project failed. And everybody starts writing like crazy. And then... Two minutes are up, and I only give them two minutes. And I say, now let's go around the room and write down all the reasons people came up with. And it's amazing the kinds of things that we learn when we do this pre-mortem. And um, it works because the mistakes people sometimes make when they do a pre-mortem is they'll say, now what could go wrong? And there's so much social pressure not to come up with anything or people aren't thinking of anything that could go wrong. They're not even imagining it. So you have to change that mindset that it has failed. And with a, a typical um, you know, review at the end of a kickoff meeting, th- there's a lot of pressure not to, not to be critical because people will, will be angry with you. So there's all this pressure uh, to say, no, it's a great plan. We did a great job. Let's get started. Whereas the pressure in a pre-mortem, it's a competitive pressure, is to come up with important problems and barriers that others haven't identified. And that's how you show how smart you are. So there's this competition going, but you know, to, uh, to identify types of things that can go wrong. And we're continually amazed by the types of discoveries, the types of, uh, of thoughts and speculations that people come up with. And we've done research and we find that the premortem seems to be a, a much more effective technique at reducing overconfidence. That's one thing it does. It also prepares people for its possible problems. Then we go back and we say, what can we do to make a better plan using the premortem? And the premortem also creates a culture of candor to some extent. That this is, we're a team that can be, that can criticize ideas and possibilities. And we're not going to be afraid to, to say anything that might, might upset people. Yeah, I, th- I think too many people are familiar with that environment, with, with that draconian leader who, <laughs> the second they, they say any type of contradictory evidence or anything, that person is going to shoot it down, which is why the pre-mortem is so good. And another thing I've seen this help in, in different organizations is people earlier in their career, younger in the organizations who usually don't voice things, all of a sudden they bring these insights that no one would have ever thought of, and it would never come to fruition unless there was this platform 
that was able to do that. Um, so yeah, I, you've got some great um, tools and resources online around the pre-mortem. I'll make sure those are linked up. But but one of the things we were just talking about is great decision makers. They're able to accept that contradictory evidence and they're able to examine it. Uh, I, I'm wondering what you've uncovered about this around good decision makers taking information that, that might hurt their ego a bit um, to get the better decisions. Right. So, I mean, good decision makers, you know, are, still have an ego and, and, and they're still pleased with themselves. So it's, it's, it's not that they, uh, they're the most humble people around. You know, there is a certain amount of arrogance. Um, is, that, is that actually an, an essential component of great decision makers? Like they've put in the work, they've done the work, and they've been able to learn where they, they've got extreme confidence and there's a reason for it? Or is that just a bias they implicitly have? Probably part of the constellation that they're, they're not afraid to try something. They have enough confidence slash arrogance to say, all right, let's, let's see how this works. Hmm. Let's give it a shot. And, 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 and this may do the trick or we may have to adapt it. And we're good enough to make those adaptations. So that, that kind of confidence, I think, is, is probably necessary to do the, go through the discovery, to, to, to go through the, the exploration that others who, who aren't, don't have the self-confidence just sort of hang back and are afraid to, to try something new or, or, to, or to suggest something that might be bold or might be unpopular. So I think that's, that is part of the dynamic. Um, but I think the, 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 great de- uh, the great decision makers, they want to have successes. And so when they're, they're doing the work, it's really about the work coming out well rather than them looking good. And that's why they'll, you know, they'll tolerate and welcome uh, contrary views um, because it gives them things to think about. And because they're confident, they don't feel challenged when people come up with criticisms. They're not crushed by it. And so I think it's that kind of mission focus that let's let's just be candid. Let's just try to understand what's working here and what's not working. What we, And then see if there are ways we have to adjust or maybe we have to change what we're trying to do, maybe we have to make a, a radical revision. They're open to that kind of improvisation. Hmm. Does this kind of fall under the category, uh, some of the things you've done a lot of work on, and that's recognition, prime decision-making, essentially how experienced people make decisions. Is this what you'd classify under that category? Um, not entirely. I think, I think recognition, prime decision-making is at the core of a lot of this type of performance is that people look at situations, know what's going on, know what to do about it. And so they don't have to spend a lot of uh, uh, time and energy sorting out what's going on. Mm -hmm. They they already see it. And, but they're also mission oriented. So if they get some contrary data, they'll say, "Hmm, maybe, maybe I've misinterpreted. Let's go back. And let's rethink it. So they're not they're not fixating. They're not locking into their initial impression, but because they have such good intuitions, 
and you know such, such experience they they can you know they they can proceed and then they, they can also be open to anomalies and to enter problems and see when they have to adjust believe me we're, we're going to circle back to intuition i know you've done a lot of work there i'm really intrigued by that but but you bringing up that um just around the experience makes me think of, of some of the studies around chess grandmasters uh and they can look at a board and they can just understand so much where they essentially look at less but see more and, and i'm wondering how, how do you analyze this in, in the real world does this just come down to filtering where you understand the 99% of stuff that's irrelevant in these situations and you can just highlight and focus on the key metrics. Is that what it's about? That's an, an important attribute of it, an important aspect of it. And that's probably something that people could measure is uh, what kinds of information do you want? And that's even a question that you can ask people. And uh, my, my friend John Schmidt, a former Marine, uses this when he runs uh, uh, decision-making sessions. He'll ask uh, you know, the students, what do you want to know? At this point, what do you want to know? And based on the question they ask, he can, he can get a pretty good idea of whether they're really understanding the dynamics of the situation or whether they're not. For example, it might be a tactical decision and somebody might say, um, yeah, I'd, I'd like to know what's the weather forecast. And it turns out the weather forecast really doesn't matter. <laughs> what you want to know is you've got this enemy unit in a place that you didn't expect. And now you're trying to figure out what to do with it. And what you don't know is um, what are they planning to do next? That's, you know, that's the critical thing that you need to know. Not whether is it, is it going to start drizzling in the next half. It makes me think, actually, like, like one of the best ways to get to great answers is great questions. Are there any other really good questions you see exquisite decision makers tend to ask of, of themselves? Um, I, none come to yeah. mind. I even have a negative reaction to, to that question. Oh, yeah. Dive, dive, dive further on this then. Which is, uh, I think if we try to come up with a standard set of questions that are good questions, that's the opposite of being curious about what's going on in a situation. So even if I could come up with a checklist, and now I'm going to start thinking about what would be on the checklist, but I don't think it would help people to have that checklist. I think it would get in the way. I don't want people to say, which of these should I be asking? I, I think they want to be in the situation, looking at the incident and trying to understand what's happening and what they don't understand and what they need to know more about. So when I do cognitive interviews, I never want to, I, sometimes I have to go into an, into an interview cold, but I like to have an interview guide. And these are the sorts of the areas that I want to explore. And we're just getting ready to start an into a, a big uh, cognitive interviewing project tomorrow. So we've worked on an interview guide, but it's just a guide. It's about the topics that we want. And I know that once the interview starts around tough cases and critical incidents, um, the guide is going to be over here, but I'm going to be asking about the incident and how it unfolded and uh, why it took certain directions that maybe weren't expected, why it became challenging, why it became confusing, what, uh, what was happening that was unexpected. And, and, and just go from there and forget about the interview guide. Hmm. 
I, I think just thus far, a 30,000 foot view of this conversation, explore your curiosities. Don't, don't expect the blueprint. You use that as a guidebook. Um, be open to, to exploration there and really analyze the decisions you're making. It seems like these are some of the key themes, uh, which is good because I feel like too often, and obviously based on my questions, you can see it's like we're, we're looking for, hey, what's, what's the five-step plan? Uh, and I think most people have established that, that life doesn't work that way. But, but, but I'm wondering, you, you've gotten to see so many of these wicked environments and where people have been on these really steep learning curves. Are, are there any commonalities of people who have really just skilled up their expertise level on uh, an extremely quick pace that, that, that you just bring to light? Okay, but before I answer that, let me go back to the, the previous discussion about uh, wanting the five steps. Yeah, people do want the five steps. They want, you know, they want to get that that kind of a blueprint. I want that kind of blueprint. We all feel more comfortable with it. And, and, and that's the tendency to proceduralize how we work. That's opposite from being curious and, and, and being open and flexible is, I mean, if I'm open and flexible, what if it fails? What if it falls flat? Then I'm stuck. So, so there's, there's, there's a risk, there, there's a, a nervousness and anxiety about, you know, not having five steps or a clear, a clear blueprint or a clear set of steps to follow uh, to carry out a project. That's, that's anxiety producing. And that gets in the way of curiosity. So I, I just want to, I, I, I share that desire for procedures and blueprints but I know that, that it has these negative consequences. Now you're asking about wicked problems, tough cases, and people who can will themselves to get up to speed more quickly. And how, how is it done? Is that, that's, that's what you asked. Yeah, uh, no, good, good memory there, way to compartmentalize. Um, so what have I seen? Uh, well, I gave you the example of Rooster Schmidl getting the whole experimental command post up to speed by, by the way he, he conducted, it, it, it wasn't just an investigation. He had people walking around from one side to the other and meeting people. And he was, he was really, it was like, it was like watching a force of nature. Um, what else can people do? Uh, to get up to speed more quickly, they can talk to, to people who are more experienced. They can ask them. They can interview them. They can ask them about tough cases. And, and people often like to tell stories, but you, you can't just let them tell their stories. You want to probe them. Oh, wait a second. You, you, you did that. I don't, I don't see how you knew that. And so you, you, you just probe them to get at, what, at, at their tacit knowledge. Because when people tell stories, they gloss over the tacit knowledge that they have and the story gives you an opportunity to, to say, time out, why did, you, why did you think that? That was your hypothesis. What was, what was driving you towards that hypothesis? So you, can, you, can, you don't just have to listen to the story. You can be an active part of, of them unpacking the story and sometimes maybe even helping them realize how they made decisions that they didn't, they didn't understand at the time. So that's one thing you can do. There, another thing is to use scenarios. In some situations, 
there are good challenging scenarios and you can put yourself through scenario training and we have a technique called shadow box for example that's a scenario uh largely a scenario based approach where people are put into tough cases and are trying to handle uh difficult decision points about what to do what information to collect what goals to pursue and then they compare what they would would do to to what a small group of experts uh, who have gone through the same scenario what the experts would do but the the the, the trainee writes down here's why i ranked it i i did it in that way and then you get to see why did the experts rank it the way they did and you understand how the experts were thinking so that's something else that could be done there's a variety of things that people can do you can shadow somebody you can you know just just there be like an apprentice and go around with them uh which i think is useful for watching them but you also want to have some time to reflect with them afterward why did you why, why did you put that there instead of there or you know what uh you use this map instead of that map or or you know, just ask them about some of the details about how they did their job rather than just trying to be quiet and 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 meek and uh and cooperative Yeah, Gary, we learn from stories. You have a great story, and my apologies, I forget which book it's from, but it deals with um, cops, uh, a brand new BMW, and ashing a cigarette. I I would love for you to tell the story, because I think this really makes it clear for for anyone listening to this. Right, so um, this was part of a project we did to try to understand the nature of insight. And if you if you don't mind let me back up and say why I was trying to understand the nature of insight. It was because I had a chart that I would use when I would give talks and the chart had two arrows, one going down, one going up. And it was about improving performance. And I said if you want to improve performance, the arrow going down, that's what you want to reduce. You want to reduce mistakes. Cut down on errors. The arrow going up that's what you want to increase you want to increase insights and expertise most organizations primarily focus on the down arrow it's all about reducing mistakes but that can't be the totality of your work because uh, you don't want to come home at night and say i had a great day i didn't make any mistakes i mean that's not why you're being paid you want to accomplish things but most organizations just think about reducing mistakes and they have ways of doing that they don't think about how we can promote insight so i present this to to groups and people would agree they say yeah that's my organization it's all about the down arrow but then they would ask me what can you tell us about the up arrow about increasing insights and i said i don't know i've never thought about the up arrow So this happened a number of times and it was irritating enough and it happened once in Singapore so there was a long a 17 hour flight back from Singapore to 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 the United States I had a lot of time to stew about it and I said I should do a project to see if I can come up with any ideas about increasing insights and so I collected 120 examples of insights some of them from books some of them from articles some of them from interviews that I had done this example with the two cops 
came from an interview that I had done for another project. And um, what happened was, and the guy who told us about it was the senior cop, the senior police officer, and they're driving in a patrol car. They're stuck in traffic. It's a red light. And just sitting there and, you know, hey, waiting for the light to turn. And his, uh, his partner, who is, you know, still on probation, a, a new police officer, and uh, out of the academy, not all that long, looks at the car in front of him, and he sees it's a brand new BMW. And he watches as the driver takes a drag on a cigarette and flicks the ashes. And he says, what? What? Who flicks the ashes in your brand new BMW? Would you do that if it was your car? Or if you borrowed it from a friend, would you do that? That doesn't make sense. Let's see what's going on. So they light up, <laughs> activate their lights, pull the car over. Sure enough, it's a stolen car. Okay, so the young police officer didn't know it was a stolen car. There was nothing announcing that it was a stolen car. All he saw was the action of flicking the ashes. And he said, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't add up. Something else is happening here. And that became one of the, one of the pathways we identified for how insights are, people arrive at insights is um, they see contradictions. They see anomalies. And that makes them investigate harder. And to me, this you're exactly right. It's one of my favorite stories. This is like a poster child for the contradiction path. You just saw something that should not have happened. And you, you need to know why. No, Gary, thank you for sharing that story. Yeah, that, that's, that's when I love it. It makes it so clear, so vivid in the mind. You were mentioning the shadow box training, which, which you developed, in it, and I would love to even understand a little bit more about what you guys actually do um, with shadow box training, because I, I know this is a company of yours. Um, I think it'd be really helpful for people to understand exactly what you guys are doing uh, and how you go about implementing so people can essentially learn through the eyes of experts. Right. So the idea of, of shadow box is to help people see through the eyes of experts and, you know, to you're essentially shadowing these these experts. But the experts don't experts are expensive. Their hearts are scheduled. So you don't want the you don't want to have to have, rely on experts. You want to be able to do the training, get people up to speed, get them smarter, give them richer mental models so they can learn from the experts without having to have the experts there. And so this is a technique that originally started with some work by a friend of mine, a firefighter, Neil Heinz. So um, the, the dominant way that we use it is with a scenario. I'd give you a tough scenario and I'd walk you through the scenario and I'd say, let's stop here. Here's four courses of action. Rank order which you would do, prefer to do from top to bottom and write down your reasons. And then we continue on with the scenario. We stop it again. It's another decision point here. At this point, you have three possible goals we're going to identify. Rank order the goals and write down your reasons. And then we continue the scenario. We might stop it again. Here's five pieces of information. Rank order which is the most important to the least important and write down your reasons. We've also had a small group of experts, subject matter experts, usually about three, sometimes more, uh, 
uh, maybe up to five or seven, uh, they've gone through the same scenario. They've done their ranking. They wrote down their reasons. So when you say, here's the three goals, here's how I rank ordered them, then you get to see how the experts rank ordered them. And you want your rank ordering to match the experts because that's sort of the game-like quality. You want, you, you want that feeling. But the important uh, learning comes in when you look at what the experts wrote down as their rationale. What was their reason? And you see, they were noticing all kinds of implications, drawing all kinds of inferences that you were never drawing. And, and now... Both you and the ex, you're seeing the world through the eyes of experts because it's the same scenario, but they're seeing things that you didn't. And so that's the usual paradigm that, that we have. There's another paradigm that uses video clips where we'll show you a video clip of something going on. And then we'll say, now that you see how it ended, let's go back and you can pause it and put your, put the cursor on anything that seems significant and write down why. And you do that, and then when you're finished, we go back and show you where the ex where the when the experts clicked, where they put their cursor and why. And now you really are seeing the world. You're seeing both seeing the same video, but you're seeing it through their eyes. Yeah, Gary. What what I appreciate about this technique is it makes me think when we were growing up, we're, we're you know working on those math problems in the math book, and you go back, you you can understand the how something's done. But you get to truly understand the why, the, the reasoning behind why the experts make that decision. I think that is a fundamental shift and helps you really understand the, the different scenarios. One of the things that this just makes me think about, you, you have a great paper on cognitive transformation theory. And I would love for you to, to uncover this a bit more, um, exactly what cognitive transformation theory is, and then dive into, into some of the, the things that this helps people shift their mental models on. No, I'm not going to do that right now <laughs> because you have an unfortunate knack of asking exciting questions that, that make me think of other things that I want to say. And then you go on to another question. My, my apologies. About the climate transformation theory in a second. But let me go back to what, you're, what you just mentioned about working math problems in a, in, in a math textbook. One of the difficulty, one of the, the, the flaws of math textbooks is they'll give you a whole bunch of problems that are all based on the techniques that you just learned in that chapter. Whereas, in fact, they should have problems at the end that draw on all the things that you've learned. So you've got to figure out which technique to apply rather than just, you know, apply it in a rote way what you just learned. And it would be nice if you also had this meta-knowledge from experts to explain why you use this technique rather than the other. So you can do a lot more with math textbooks than just this kind of rote, mindless drill. So that's one reaction I have. A second reaction is, forget about math. What about, what about cooking? I just, uh, my... Uh, I just made fudge. My uh, youngest asked me it was his birthday and, and he wanted me to, to make fudge for him, uh, which I didn't want to do because I, I never successfully made fudge. But his, his, my daughter said she'll help me out. But I, I've always failed. So Saturday we were, we were making fudge and there's, there's, you know, the recipe 
and you have the recipe. Here's the ingredients. Here's the steps. But there's nothing cognitive about it to say, here's why we're doing it this way. Here's the kind of common mistakes that people make. Here's, you know, what you can anticipate. Here's why this step comes before that step. Here's how to tell when this is ready to move on to the next stage. There's none of that in a recipe. It's just a list of procedures and rules rather than something much more dynamic. Whereas, in fact, cooking depends on RPD and, and recognitional skills to know I've stirred this enough and, and you know this is ready to move on to the next stage. So th this applies in, in, in a variety of ways. Now to your question about cognitive transformation theory. Yeah, this is work that I did with Holly Baxter. And the idea of cognitive transformation theory is that if you are gonna get better, you're not just adding more rules and procedures to the knowledge that you have. Like, like this, it's, you know, items in a warehouse. You're going to change your beliefs. You're going to change your mental model. You're going to discard some things that you believe, or you're going to modify them and say, okay, this, this holds only under these circumstances, not under those circumstances. And that's the cognitive transformation that we should be trying to achieve. And it's not simply what you're learning, but also what you're unlearning, that there are certain things that you believe that may be wrong or may be only true in a narrow range. And you need to discover what that range is so that you're not misapplying it. And so uh, the, the goal for cognitive transformation theory is to encourage people to build richer mental models that involves unlearning and relearning and, and really um, changing beliefs, drawing insights, building on insights. That seems to be essential uh, even in classrooms, that classroom teachers can move from a, a, an orientation, here's the material, I've got to cover, I've got an hour to cover it, to trying to foment insights in, in the students and have them make their, make their own discoveries. Mickey Chi has talked about this, about this kind of self-explanation that we learn best when we make our discovery rather than when somebody tells us things. So how can you arrange the conditions uh, for the trainees to make their own discovery? And sometimes it means not telling them everything, leaving gaps so that hmm, this doesn't, so that they, they have to actively engage in bridging those gaps. And in doing that, they're building uh, more powerful mental models. Yeah, you mentioned unlearning there. It makes me think of that Sherlock Holmes quote. I'll, I'll paraphrase here. Essentially, like your 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 brain should be like an empty attic. What you fill it with, the furniture, um, is going to be so important. But sometimes you got to discard that old furniture, meaning your old mental models that aren't going to be helpful. Um, and there's even like that that great. Uh, I think it's the the storehouse model uh, you've talked about. It would be like having a filing cabinet, and, and you could take that. You could pile on new files, new facts, everything like that. 
But if every single new fact is going to make that filing cabinet just messier, meaning your your mental models aren't up to date, it, it, new facts and new knowledge is not going to help you. You've got to you've got to revisit those old mental models. Uh, that that's one I I just love. It's just like it's always in the back of my head. Right. It's it's not cramming cramming more paper into a file cabinet and saying now I now I've got it because you you're making it harder to find what you need. I have a an image that's always stayed with me. This is from the 1960s. So this is from a million years ago. When I was a graduate student at the University of Pittsburgh. And, uh, and, and people, uh, this was in the computer center. And, uh, and people would have punch cards. You, you, you don't know, people don't know what a punch card is, but it's like, you know, a, a strip of, of cardboard. And they would, you know, you would punch out the digits from zero to nine. And, and, and that's the way uh, the, 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 the computer was being programmed. So they, and, and people would carry around boxes of these punch cards. That was their program. <laughs> it, was, it was so primitive. And it was primitive. And, and that's the way it was. And at one point I was in the computer center and they were cleaning the punch card machine. So they opened it up and they were sweeping all the chads. The chads are the little, little rectangles that get punched out. They were sweeping the, the chads onto the floor so they could, you know, clean the machine would be ready for the next day. And then the guy had his broom and he, you know, shoveled it together so he could, he could, you know, remove it. And he couldn't stop himself. And he reached in and he just lifted up a whole handful of chads. And he said, I have more knowledge in my hands than I do in my head. And I thought, what you have in your hand a little squares of cardboard squares with the digits zero to nine. You have nothing in your hand. <laughs> it seemed like we had a lot because there were so many of them that it must be important and it has significance. So yeah, cramming more information in doesn't always help. And in fact, that's, a, that's another problem that people run into when they're not sure what to do. They say, let me gather more information rather than let me try to figure out what's going on here with the information I have. So this is a, a tendency that gets in people's way to think that more information is going to help uh, because the marginal value of each additional piece of information gets smaller and smaller, but you have other complications as well. So the search for more information, the, the desire to cram more pieces of paper into your file cabinet so you can be smarter is as you point out exactly is, is is very misleading and unfortunate. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, another thing you you mentioned a minute ago is just when when we experience the, these certain learnings, they stick with us. I always think about this like when emotion is tied to something. For me, for some reason, it sticks with me so much longer. I, I'm wondering within shadow box training, have you guys implemented anything like that where where you try to tie emotion to to help with memory and these learnings? Right. We haven't done as much as, as we should. That's a great point because emotion is there. I mean, that's one of the, I believe one of the functions of emotion is to uh, create urgency and create saliency and, and, and uh, allow us to properly value experiences that we've had. With Shadowbox, we see emotion, we see stress when people are stuck and they don't know what they're supposed to do or, or, or just how to, how to proceed or, or, or what's going on in a situation. And we see delight when people 
figure things out. Or when we, when sometimes when we say, here's the way you rank the options, here's the way the experts ranked them. And they say, oh, of course, of course. And so that's actually not delight, but it's, it's a moment of insight, uh, sharing with them how, what the experts were picking up on. And that stays with you. You know, that, that's, those kinds of breakthroughs, uh, those are very exciting and, uh, and very meaningful. Yeah, I agree. Another thing you brought up earlier, I, I want to dive further into, um, and that's just understanding intuition and, and being able to listen to it more. I, I would love to know just like your latest thinking on intuition. Right. So this is a longstanding argument that I have with uh, leading researcher Danny Kahneman. He and his community are very um, uncomfortable with the idea of intuition. He talks about system one thinking, which is very associational, very emotional. And system two thinking, which is like Mr. Spock, very analytical, very careful, uh, and they find all kinds of heuristics that people use um, because system two thinking is takes effort and people usually try to rely on system one instead. And so they find heuristics and they show that people use these heuristics because they put them in situations where the heuristics don't work and they still use the heuristics. So they say this is about biases and that's how they're able to, to demonstrate the biases. Um, and so people will ask me, when can you trust your intuition? And my answer is never. You can never you trust your intuition because it might be wrong. That's why the, the model that I have of decision-making has two parts. The first part is the intuitive part where you use associations. You use patterns that you've learned to size up what's happening what to attend to, what you can ignore. You talked about that before. What to expect. And if the expectation is violated, that's an interesting and important piece of information. What goals to pursue, what courses of action are likely to work. That's what your intuition is giving you. And so people can do that. People with experience can do that very rapidly. So that's the first part of the RPD model. But the second part, comes from the, the issue, how do you evaluate your intuition? If people, firefighters and others told us they don't compare options. They use their intuition to tell them what's likely to work. Well, how do you evaluate it except by comparing it to another option? And what we discovered is they evaluate it by imagining it, by saying, this is the course of action. Let me think through what would happen if I carry it out. How, how might it work? How might it fail? And say so they do what we call a mental simulation. They run it through in their mind to see if it'll work in, in this context, in this situation. And if it'll work, then they're ready to make the decision in just a few seconds. If it almost works, then they modify the course of action to overcome the problem. If they can't figure out a way to fix it, then they say, forget that course of action. What else can I do? So intuition is just part of the story of decision-making, but it's a critical part. And it's a part that the laboratory researchers missed because they weren't studying people who had experience. They were giving the college students novel tasks. And so they had no experience base to draw on. 
yeah, I never understood why, why everyone's going to be like so binary, right? Like for, throw intuition out the window. No, no, no. It's like th- these things can help encapsulate a total model and help just us get to better decisions. Um, so yeah, I, I appreciate you, you shedding light on that. Uh, another thing I just found like really interesting, you just meant mentioning the, the mental simulation. Um, uh, I used to play a lot of athletics. So I used to do a lot of mental imagery prior to an event and I still do it now. Um, so it, it almost seems like that, that is applicable also in athletic where you're running through potential scenarios, both the positive, but then also the downside of a, trying a, a certain move and things like that. It's just interesting how, how these patterns emerge all throughout different domains. Yeah, but I think I think there are people like you who really want to get better. And so they'll go through that. It's not that you're going through the effort. You can't stop yourself from doing this kind of imagining to see, you know, if I did that, how, how would that work? I mean, that's just part of your makeup. But there are other people who just want to, you know, they figure I put my time in uh, during the practice session, I don't have to think about it anymore, and they stop thinking about it, and 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 they don't they don't improve. So you asked before about what does it take for people to get better? That's kind of the kind of mindset that it takes for people to get better. Hmm. Yeah, it's a light switch. I, I I don't know if it's good or bad. I just can't seem to turn off. It's that kind of just being drawn to, to certain things, developing an improvement. Uh, Gary, I've taken up way too much of your time uh, thus far. This is I, I could go down hours or rabbit holes with you. Um, I'm going to round this out with with two questions here. I, I see you're sitting in front of uh, two big bookshelves. Uh, people are always interested in, in what the guests are reading. I'm wondering if there's any books that you've picked up. This this does not have to do with decision-making or anything like that, just books throughout your life uh, that you've really enjoyed. Oh, that's, you should have to- asked me that question in advance and I could think about it. That's a really tough question. What are the books that changed? Okay, one book that really changed me was when I was a graduate student and it was a book called Cognitive Psychology by Ulrich Neiser. It was published in 1967. And I read that book and I was just knocked out. And I said, even though my my department at the University of Pittsburgh didn't have anybody in the area of cognitive psychology, it was was, an an area that was just emerging. I said, this is what I want to do. And so that's a book that had a tremendous influence on me. Another book that had a tremendous influence was a book by Bert Dreyfus, What Computers Can't Do. Um, which was a critique of artificial intelligence, uh, you know, just made me think more about what, uh, about how people function and how they're not just robot being robots following rules. So that'd be a a second one. And a third, I think is, um, uh, DeGroote's book, Thought and Choice in Chess. Uh, where he did research with chess grandmasters. He was also, a, I think he was a chess master himself, and he he just studied chess grandmasters, um, playing games, handling chess problems, thinking aloud, seeing what they were, were what they were up to, and really doing cognitive interviewing. And it was it was uh, amazing to see what what he was able to to ferret out. So those are three books that that stand out for me over the, you know, over my uh, career. The book that I'm reading now that I'm finding very fascinating is a book called Unmaking the West by, uh, it's an edited book. Um, 
my friend Phil Tedlock and uh, Richard Lebode and uh, Jeffrey Parker are the are the editors, and it's about asking various his, historians and analysts if you could change one thing, what would you change that would prevent the West from being as dominant as it is? And, and just to watch their minds at work, trying to do the counterfactual reasoning is a treat. Oh, I'll have to explore that. Yeah, we just, we just did a deep dive on, on Phil Tetlock's book, Super Forecaster. It's all about re- revisiting decision-making. So I, I love these book recommendations. Final one, then, then we'll link the listeners up with everything that, that you've got going on. But if you could do that, just have like one of those deep dive conversations for hours with anyone dead or alive, just not a family member or friend, who would you love to just be able to sit down and interview? Who would I interview? Um, the guy I would, uh, okay. Uh, the guy who's jumping to, uh, to the front of my mind is Lyndon Johnson. <laughs> and it's because whether, whether you would, I mean, he was not an admirable man. And, uh, but having read, you know, uh, the, the volumes of Robert Caro's uh, biography of Lyndon Johnson, especially Master of the Senate, and to, to try to understand how he was able to take such a totally um, almost dysfunctional entity and bend it to his will, how he was able to figure out how to get people to do what he wanted people who were sworn opponents of him, you know, Southerners who were opposed to uh, desegregation orders, signing on. Uh, the things he accomplished uh, were, were so amazing. Uh, I, he's the guy that I, that, that, that I, w- I would love. I mean, he, he's the one who stands out. There's one more volume of uh, Carol's uh, biography, but it hasn't been published yet, and all Caro fans are are sort of waiting for that last that last volume to get published. We can't wait. No, I, I love it. That's the, that's the first time uh, he's come up as an answer. But Gary, this has been so intriguing. Your your work's really impacted me. I want to make sure we, we link your up, uh, work up for the listeners. Where where should we direct them? We'll have everything linked up in the show notes. So they can easily click. But anywhere you want them checking out. Uh, the easiest place is to go to um, the, my, my company's website, www.shadowboxtraining.com. Fantastic. I'll also have your books linked up and then uh, some of the great papers you've been part of. Um, but Gary Klein, I cannot thank you enough for joining us on What Got You Here. Okay. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed this conversation. This was a very, very delightful. Uh, you had... One, one tough, fascinating question after another. That's a real workout. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There? I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.